Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest, now on Spotify, so listen on Spotify. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, you did a lot for our new issue on sale now. So you not only have a big preview of General Hospital's last week of new shows that taped before the pandemic shut down production, but you spoke to Adam Sharp, president of Natus, about what's going on with the Emmys. So tell me everything. Well, let's start with the daytime Emmys, because it is, of course, a sign of these troubled times that what was supposed to be a three-night extravaganza in Pasadena this June will instead be a virtual ceremony conducted at a yet-to-be-determined date and in a yet-to-be-determined fashion, quite frankly. Now, Adam explained that when the coronavirus pandemic began, at first they wanted to postpone, but that proved to be impractical, if not impossible, for a number of reasons, including that the venue they were contracted to use did not have available dates in the fall, which they figured was like the earliest that uh, gatherings of that size might be allowed in California. Mm-hmm. And also uh, that he and his team recognized that people might be wary of, you know, rushing back to red carpet events and to auditoriums packed with people just a few months from now. So um, he said that the nominations uh, are coming out very soon and that what these virtual awards will look like and when they will be will be determined after that in conversation with the nominees and taking into account what uh, the nominees are willing and able to do from from home. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing who makes that list of nominees. Yeah. Um, I know there were some changes in the categories this year. I had heard from people voting that there were some changes in sort of actual judging. Um, And uh, so it'll be interesting to see if that yields any sort of different results. Right. Um, But, you know, it's funny because people really have time to devote to watching the reels right now because they're at home. Yeah. You know, and critiquing them, you know, but at the same time, it's just certainly a shame that the ultimate winners won't have their like get up on the stage and make a big speech moment. Cause I feel like everyone sort of like dreams about that when yeah. you think about an award show. 
Um, but, you know, it would be such a shame after all the good work we saw last year if nothing happened to commemorate it. So I'm happy that they've figured out something to do and are going forward as best they can. Yeah, and I have to say that I was impressed by how well Adam seemed to understand how much the daytime Emmys mean to the community uh, separate and apart from the actual doling out of awards. Like he totally got that it is that one night a year that everyone in daytime can gather and reunite and see old friends and mingle. And there is of course no substitute for that. Um, and not for nothing, but I'm totally going to miss sitting next to you in the audience stuff. Oh, ditto, ditto. Um, but anyway, as you mentioned, uh, GH has a big week coming up to mark its last batch of original episodes until they are able to go back into production. So we are going to see a big dramatic reveal at Wiley's custody hearing, uh, Sonny facing a heartbreaking choice about Mike's end-of-life care. And as a side note, I talked to Maurice Bernard, who plays Sonny uh, earlier this week, and we were kind of talking about those scenes, and he couldn't even really talk about them without getting choked up, and he was like, brace yourself. Um, And we're also going to see Nicholas and Ava trying to exploit the rift between Elizabeth and Franco. I mean, it sounds like it's going to be an exciting send-off, you know, and look, hopefully we'll be seeing new episodes soon, someday. Um, you know, over days, we're actually going to get a very big reveal. Um, going to turn out that Maggie didn't actually kill her granddaughter or Adrian after all, and it was Orpheus who was behind it all. Prior to that, however, we will see Maggie attempt suicide, which her portrayer, Suzanne Rogers, told me when I was at the set months ago that it was a very difficult set of scenes to do, um, you know, understandably. Yeah. Um, we'll also see Kyle Lauder's Rex return come to an end, as well as Brock Kelly's run as Evan. Um So even though we will be down to one show with original episodes airing, you know, we have big plans at the magazine, of course, to keep all four shows covered as usual. I mean, actors are home, they're game for talking about life, their shows, their characters, and, you know, anything under the sun. Yeah, and I think actors are are actually hungry, you know, to stay connected with the fans. (laughs) On, on, On a programming note, this week ABC announced its plans for at least the first few weeks after this coming one for GH. Uh, From May 25th through June 12th, the show is going to rebroadcast the Nurses Ball, starting with the 2014 Ball. And it will definitely be fun to see some of those performances again, like Liesl Obrecht's singular rendition of Phil Coleman and, uh, (laughs) of course, the striptease from Magic Milo and the Magic Wands. (laughs) Oh, definitely. I will be tuning in again. Um, But, you know, with all these vintage episodes airing, it really feels like such a nostalgic time And um, ABC is actually airing a primetime special um, on May 19th with interviews from current stars as well as ones who started their career in daytime. I think it's going to be a definite tune-in moment there. And actually, our guest today has had a pretty remarkable career in soaps, to say the least. It's Hillary B. Smith, who definitely made a name for herself as As the World Turns as Margot, but became an even bigger fan favorite as One Life to Live's Nora. So let's check in with her and see what's been happening. Hi, Hillary. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. <laughs> it's been a long time. It, How are you? I'm good. It has. And I can tell you that Mara and I are so excited that you were able to join us to talk today. So thank oh. you. Hi, Mara. Hello, hello. So we're going to take a little walk down Hillary Smith, uh, life and times here, memory lane. (laughs) Okay. Um, So we are going to start with, you studied acting at Sarah Lawrence and worked on and off. 
uh, on Broadway after finishing school. Yes. And then you made your soap debut on The Doctors playing Kit in 1982. Yes. I, I started actually in Los Angeles first doing primetime. And I, I always wanted to just do daytime. I just wanted to live in New York City and do a soap opera, and then I could do my theater at night. That's all I ever wanted, and I could not get arrested on a soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> I did primetime. I did Broadway. I did regional. I did everything, but I could not get arrested on a soap opera. I couldn't even get an under five oh. on a soap opera <laughs> until The Doctors. Well, how did it come about? Uh, well, you know, it was uh, the agents, you know, they called, and I went in, and did my screen test. I was so excited, but I was, you know, I was like braced for the old, they went a different direction because my agent had told me I was TV ugly. Oh, oh God. <laughs> and that I probably wouldn't get a job on television. So I was fully expecting, I, I had just done a sitcom called No Soap Radio. And so I was under contract with ABC and this part came up in New York, half hour soap. Are you kidding me? I could do my theater at night. I was so excited. So I auditioned for it and fully expecting not to get it. And when I got it, I was like, are you kidding me? This is great. But then NBC had to talk to ABC and get me out of my contract because the show hadn't been picked up, but they had options. And I thought, are you kidding me? I finally get a soap opera and now I'm not going to be able to do it. (laughs) Um, But it all worked out, needless to say. But then again, the soap went off six months later. So I was back in Los Angeles doing primetime again. (laughs) Well, what stands out to you about your brief experience on The Doctors? I met some of the best friends in the business that I had when I was there. Um, you know, Alec Baldwin and I ended up, um, sharing an apartment together in New York city afterwards with, uh, Tuck Milligan. And then the three of us had so much fun. Um, Zimmer and I to this day are buddies. Um, and Alec and Zimmer and I all had the same agent. So we, we had met before I went on. So my first day on the doctors was actually Kim Zimmer's last day on the doctors. Oh, wow. And, yeah, that was sort of funny. And Jada Rowland and David O'Brien. And, you know, and I also watched The the Doctors when I was a kid growing up. I watched it. And um, I remember meeting David O'Brien years and years ago when, when he came down to Palm Beach to do the Royal Poinciana Playhouse. I can't remember what show they were doing. <clears throat> and I went up to him and I, you know, was asking him all kinds of questions. And I, you know, I really want to be in a soap opera and all this stuff. And he was so cute. He said, you know, I have a feeling I'm going to see you again. So I showed up for my first day of work and David O'Brien was there and I went, I don't know whether you remember me or not. He goes, yep. And here she is. I (laughs) knew I'd see you again. It was really, it was very sweet. Yeah. That's so special. (laughs) And it was also really cool because we were in the, um, you know, we're in the broadcast center there. So uh, when we arrived for work, it was, you know, I, I shared the elevator with Secretary of States and, you know, all these political people and all these very famous people who were all going up for the Today Show because we were all on the same floor and, and our makeup rooms overlapped. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, cool. you know, I'd see Tom Brokaw and I'd see Jane Pauley. And so it was very, you know, you really felt like, you were like in the heart of it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned it did go off the air, but the following year you took over the role of Margot Hughes on As the World Turns, which had been previously played by Margaret Collin. So tell us your World Turns casting story. 
Well, that was an interesting one also because I had done two shows in Los Angeles. I did a pilot, uh, which was a spinoff of um, the spinoff of Too Close for Comfort. That's it. Mm-hmm. And it was Lainey, with Lainey Kazan. So I did that pilot. And then I did a guest star appearance on um, in Baby Makes Five with Peter Scolari. So I had both of those shows kind of going and my now husband and I, um, got engaged and I had done a movie. I mean, everything was kind of going and, and everyone was trying to push me to move to Los Angeles. And my husband lived in Boston and, um, we were kind of at that point where it was like, well, I guess we kind of need to make a decision. I'm going to go to Los Angeles. And that's when he pop the question. So we had to rethink things. And I said, well, I'll come back to daytime. I did it before I can commute between New York and Boston. And my agent put memo out, said, you know, daytime. And this part came up. So I went down and it was really quite incredible. The group of ladies that were auditioning, they were, I was in really good company. Uh, they all went on to do really lovely things. So I don't think it was any skin off their nose that they didn't get the part. But um, I screen tested with Justin Dees and Margaret will be pleased to know he was not really happy about having a new Margot. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, um, I think it was whoever could um, kind of hold their own and not lose their cool on them. <laughs> got the part. So I got the part. <laughs> and uh, we actually became really good buds. I really enjoyed, I mean, he was one of the most, fabulous actors I've ever had the pleasure to work with. I really just think he could put more into one word than anybody. Kind of rooted for each other because <laughs> it was kind of an interesting experience, the uh, screen test. <laughs> <laughs> um, so once you had the part and came to Oakdale officially, like, what do you remember about your first day on the job there? Oh, wow. Well, it was a wedding and I can't remember who's, what character's wedding it was. Um, all I remember was arriving and Scott Bryce, um, taking me and dipping me like in a dance dip and saying, I'm so glad you're here. And I thought, wow, I'm engaged. And now I'm meeting this terrific guy. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> um, but we call each other brother and sister to this day. I, I think again, I met some wonderful people, Scotty Bryce, um, you know, Don Hastings, Larry Brigman, you know, Larry playing my dad and, and the four of us have stayed and then Benjamin Hendrickson, my love, love, love. I just, and I had my Greg Marks, I, you know, Julianne Moore, I mean, Meg Ryan, it, you know, it was just, we just had, it was a really fabulous experience, um, kind of in the trenches. Cause we were, we sort of felt like the, uh, this is going to be so unpolitically, I mean, politically incorrect, but bear with me. We sort of felt like the ugly redheaded stepchild that had been sent out to foster care. <laughs> Because we were kind of low man on the totem pole and the ratings, but the cast was so incredible. Mm-hmm. And then when Doug Marlin came to write it, I mean, I don't think there was a better written show. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. We had the talent pool there and it was really, you know, Marissa Tomei and um, Julianne Moore and God, we just, we had really, really good talent there. Mm-hmm. And so that was fun. I always felt like I was... Mm-hmm. I was a real working actor. Mm-hmm. 
was did it surprise you at all to see how successful so many actors who you did work with became after leaving the soap? No. I remember before I got on the show watching it and um god this one girl just was riveting to watch and it was such a nothing burger scene but I was just looking at her going she's phenomenal and that was Meg Ryan wow she had such a spark and a quirk and she was so interesting to watch and she had she was um thoughtful in everything she did and so um relaxed and everything and, and watching her and Scotty Bryce together were just it was really just, it was really fun. And, and working with Larry Brigman, I mean, he's just, it was like a masterclass. And, and Benjamin, I, Benjamin and I just had the, really the best time. And I had, you know, my Greg Marks, who I just, well, God adored. And, and who's the guy at Breaking Bad? Um, Brian Cranston. Thank you. So when, um, when Greg Marks left, we had to replace him. And, um, you know, I had a broken heart with that one. And, uh, there was a quick replacement. Um, Jason Kincaid came in and just for a brief time. And then we, Calhoun, Bob Calhoun and I went out to Los Angeles and we were reading people out in Los Angeles and we read Brian Cranston. And I, and I was like, done, done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He's the guy, but the network wanted to see him. So they flew him back East and, uh, there were a group of guys, all really good. And when we got back east, that's when we had them one after the other. And then there was Scott Holmes. And it was just Bob Calhoun and I looked at each other and went, wow, we were so sure that Brian Cranston was the one. And Scotty Holmes just had it. It was him. Wow. That's amazing. And again, no skin off his nose. Brian went on to do some lovely, lovely things. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think it turned out okay. Yeah, it's the old adage, when a door shuts, a window, a big old window opens. (laughs) Um, So you were one of the first actors in daytime, I think, Hillary, to have their real-life baby play their baby on a soap. Your son, Philip, originated the role of Adam on How's the World Turn. Yeah. What was that like for you? Well, it was, you know, and right on the heels was Annie Sward Hansen Mm -hmm. having her baby play her Mm -hmm. baby. It was, it was great because I missed out a lot on my daughter and I didn't want to miss out on my son. So I left the show. I think I was about, um, eight and a half months pregnant when I left the show. And, um, you know, that's when Margot left and went to Greece to go deal with her pregnancy, which I was, you know, supposedly hiding all along. And the writer's strike happened and they were having a devil of a time trying to do writers and they couldn't replace me. And I wasn't getting other time. And I actually, I just, I missed the show. (laughs) I just, I kind of missed the show. So Cal and I talked to each other and he said, would you, you know, if you came back, you want to bring your son to play your son? And I went, well, that's really the only way I could do it is if he played my son, Then, then I could at least be with him. So, um, he goes, great, let's do it. And it was wonderful. It was hard because I was separated from the cast. I was, you know, cause I was a mom. I would know, have my mom duties. I had a dressing room that was down closer to the floor so that, you know, he could nap and be with the nurse. And I didn't have a dressing room up where everyone else was. So I felt a little removed from that s- standpoint. 
And then they finally gave me a dressing room back up there so I could, mm-hmm. you know, be with Fipsy and the ba- you know, baby nurse and stuff. But then I could go up and be with the cast and kind of do my work while he needed to nap and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it was fun. And he was great. As a matter of fact, I don't know whether you heard this story or not. He, um, my agent was <laughs> trying to negotiate previous experience in utero. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so we we get to the studio floor i guess i've been you know fipsy now is about oh gosh nine or ten months old uh no he's probably a year at this point and i have a scene with with benjamin in margo's house and i have to go and he comes and says you know i need you to come with me there's a you know we've got this murderer all trapped i said i don't have a sitter but let me go grab my stuff and I'll drop him off at, you know, at uh, Don Hastings' house, Bob's house. And um, so I hand him Adam and I go up the stairs. And if you remember, there was a fireplace and the stairs kind of went up over the fireplace. And there was a balcony where you could turn and look down over the living room. And they had a wide shot and it was of Hal holding Adam with me up above in the background. And with that, Fipsy grabs Benjamin's face with both hands and goes, Dad, Dad. <laughs> and I was just staring. Benjamin was staring. Everyone was just stopped in their tracks. The director yells, Cut. And I was like, Under five. He's an under five now. <laughs> But it was so funny. I wish you could have seen everyone's faces. The whole crew, everyone in the studio just went. (laughs) (laughs) So when I finally said, okay, I I have to go. I'm leaving now. It was a year and a half later. I just said, okay, I'm, I'm done. I need to go and do other things. Um, They asked if Phipps could stay. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, why? Oh, that's great. You'll make concessions for him, but not me. That's just terrific. That's so funny. They saw something. Um, Well, you did take a break um, when your kids were young, but you made a very triumphant return to daytime in 1992 when One Life hired you to play the legendary Nora Hannon. So how did that job come about? Well, I was always on the road. I mean, right after One Life to right after As the World Turns, I went and did a pilot with Ava Gabor where I played her daughter. And then I went to Heidi Chronicles and then I took the summer off. It was the first time ever that I'd gotten a summer off. And then I came back and went um, and, and did a film with uh, Sandra Bullock called Love Potion Number no. 9. And then I went into to LA and um, I did... Oh, I did lips together, teeth apart also. And anyway, I, so I was busy, busy, busy and doing a lot of stuff. And then I did um, the show Driving Miss Daisy with uh, Teresa Merritt and Saul Rubinick and mm-hmm. Joan Plowright and Robert Guillaume. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, oh, it was, the, you know, it was Alfred Urey wrote it. He was the writer and the Xanax were producing it. And it was phenomenal. It was just such a high-class production. I was just thrilled, thrilled. And we shot it the night of the riots. And, uh, boy, and the Xanax didn't tell us what was going on. They just kept it going. They kept the audience there. 
And then they let us all know, I mean, Los Angeles was on fire at that point and they, they got planes for us, but my husband couldn't get a hold of me because my name was Hillary Bailey Smith at the point, at that point. And they'd hyphenated it and he got so scared and nervous. And so it was really, and I finally got a hold of him and I'm fine. And I flew out and I landed in, in New York and he said, I, I just, can we, can you just come back to daytime? <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, yeah, I, I want you back to day, at daytime. I mean, the kids would curl up in my suitcase because I never had my suitcase, Aww. you know, away for long. I, and, and I was blessed, so blessed to have the work. I was so grateful to have the work, but uh, it was really more time away from the kids than I wanted. And they were kind of at crucial ages and stuff. So I went, okay. And I put the, um, the word out and uh, One Life to Live called. And, um, so I kind of felt badly because one life to live and as the world turns were in the same time slot. So I called Doug Marlin out of courtesy and I said, I just want you to know, um, I'm thinking about coming back to daytime and one life to live is already called and I'm going to go meet with them. And he goes, you're so sweet to call. We're so happy with Ellen Dolan. It's great. So I said, okay. So I went to the screen test and I was screen testing with Bobby Woods and um, the maestro was, was directing and he came out to me at one point after my first take and he goes, and he was back was to the cameras and I was facing the cameras. He goes, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to nod your head like you understand what I'm saying. And I said, okay. And I'm nodding my head and he goes, and I'm going to talk a little bit more and then, okay, nod again. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. I nodded and he goes, okay, we're going to do it again. And I went, wait, 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 what was that? He goes, oh, they gave me a note to give you that I didn't agree with. <laughs> but I shouldn't, shouldn't I know the note just in case he goes, no, 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 you shouldn't. And he went back into the control room <laughs> and I was like, I turned to Woods. He goes, trust him. I was like, okay. So I did the screen test. And then I remember Linda Gottlieb calling me upstairs going, you know, we're really looking for a redhead. I said, well, a redhead screen tested, you should hire her. And he said, uh, she said, um, well, would you be interested in being a redhead? And I was like, sure, I'd be a redhead, but you got a redhead downstairs and she was great. <laughs> so it took about a week, but then they called and said I had the part. Two weeks later, I'd already dyed my hair red and I was getting ready to go in for my first day of work and Doug Marlin calls and says, Ellen Dolan's leaving the show. Will you please come back? Wow. I said, oh, Doug, I can't. He said, why? Why can't you? I said, my hair is red. My first day of work is tomorrow. I can't. I'm already locked in. He goes, if I can get you out of it, would you consider it? Wow. And I had to seriously sit there and think. And I went, I don't think I can, Doug. I, I've given him my word. And he was like, of course you did. Wow. And that was that. That's crazy. I know. And what was so weird was that I was supposed to do a play, which I couldn't. So Ellen Parker replaced me in the play. She ended up doing the play. And if you remember, Ellen Parker had been on Guiding Light. Right. Well, Ellen Dolan had replaced her. No, Ellen Parker had replaced Ellen Dolan and Ellen Dolan had replaced me. Right. And it just did this little right. vicious circle of the three of us. <laughs> 
Awesome. That's really something. Wow. Well, in your first year on uh, One Life, you became a central figure in one of like the key storylines really in the history of that show, which was the gang rape yeah. of Marty Sabra, yeah. played by Susan Haskell. Yeah. And Nora, of course, was the attorney for the defendants, a group that included Roger Howard's Todd. So what stands out to you about the months that story was front burner and all the work you put into it? Wow. That was, you know, that was amazing because, um, everybody was just on their game. I mean, first of all, Susan Haskell is just a phenomenal actress and she played this character so completely. She was this spoiled little rich. I mean, she was this sad little rich girl who just was looking for someone to love. And she had, you know, had this one night stand with the baseball hero and who then ridiculed her and made her feel so, um, small and undone. And, and then there was, um, you know, the, the, the frat boy number two, that's who Todd was before he had a name. He was, he was frat boy number two. He didn't have a character name until all of this went down. And you saw him being so abused emotionally by his father that you kind of understood and felt badly for where everyone was coming from and the awkwardness. Um, I mean, it's sort of like the show, was it 13 Reasons Why? Mm -hmm. The Netflix show. I mean, you sort of saw it from everyone's point of view. And it was just one of those heartbreaking moments where, uh, you know, you know, the trains are going to collide and you, you don't want to look, but you can't tear your eyes away. And it's what happened and the misunderstandings and how eyewitness testimony can not work. And, um, at that point, Nora and Bo were just starting this, this relationship where they were dating. I mean, you literally dated with Bo and Nora. It wasn't just a wham, bam. We went on dates and the audience went on dates with us. So they were very invested in that relationship. And it was just during a time of Michael Malone and Josh Griffith that, where the stars aligned and you just could relate to every single person. And it was a multi-generational story and had rippling effects that went across the whole canvas of the show. And I just remember Michael had wrote a book called Times Witness and he is an eloquent, eloquent writer. And his closing arguments were these beautiful long sort of soliloquies. And I, when, when this story was pitched, um, I was pulled upstairs and they told me that I was going to be doing this story and that I was going to be tending, you know, and they were going to be, they were going to be guilty. They did it. And I was going to get them off. Mm-hmm. And I had a really hard time with that. Um, because I was raised in the days of soap operas where, you know, the what the good guys were the ones you rooted for the bad guys were the ones you loved to root against there was always a story to be told and a lesson to be learned but more importantly was that there was a morality that was always in sort of the baseline of these stories that good always presided over evil and i know it's rather antiquated and we've gotten away from it now but i i really firmly believe that's good to- storytelling when you can do that mhm so I asked um, Linda Gottlieb, I said, 
okay, I, I don't know whether that's the story you want to tell, but if you do tell that story, can you just do me a favor? Can you make sure that Nora knows before the verdict comes that they're guilty so that this is not something that she celebrates or gloats, uh-huh. but either just before or just after, but somehow or other, there has to be um, repercussions for doing her job so well because, you know, she rips Marty across the coals for the drinking and everything else. And they ran with it. Michael and Josh just ran with it. Um, and they had all these fabulous scenes prior to the closing arguments, way before that, where I found out and I told Bo and we ended up having a fight about rapists and if they're guilty, they should be guilty. And he didn't want me to defend. And it rippled across the canvas. It was just one of those brilliant, brilliant stories. And then after the whole, um, you know, the, the trial and the mistrial and stuff, they continued on with it, you know, with the whole wait until dark story. So it was just, you know, they really took one story and folded it into the other story and it just kept going. And that was the, um, that was sort of the school that I learned from with Doug back in those days, you know, writers had to pitch to the network and the soap companies, um, the producers, their year story. They had to pitch a story for a year and get it approved. It wasn't a flying by the seat of your pants or we're going to take this turn or that turn or this is what the audience wants. We're going to do this. They had those stories mapped out and we were only two weeks in advance. Oh, wow. (laughs) Seems crazy now. Yeah, but there was something nice about committing to something and being able to really know where you were going. I mean, I remember Doug calling me one time and saying, we're doing this story and I really want to get the character of Margot and Hal into bed somehow. How do I do that? How do you think Margot would end up there? So it was, you know, when we had a conversation about it, it was, he, he, you know, Douglas loved actors and loved the, they, they were his family. So it was just, it was an interesting time to be in soaps, I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. We are in challenging times right now, and it's harder than ever to connect with the right therapist. Fortunately, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping trauma, and family conflicts. They work with 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states to connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions without having to leave your house, which is incredibly important right now. If you're not happy, you can change and ask to request a new counselor at any time. There's no delay and there's no charge for doing so, and anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is a lot more affordable than traditional face-to-face counseling, but just as effective. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash dishing. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash dishing. Yeah. 
Now, for your work in that storyline, you won the 1994 Daytime Emmy for Lead Actress. So what was the night of that Emmy win like for you? (laughs) Well, I mean, everyone won except for Woodsy. He didn't use something. He used something else. He used Sarah's death. Um, So he was the only one that didn't win that year. He's won before. but, um, But everyone, the writers won. Susan Haskell won, you know, Roger Howarth won. It was just, you know, everyone who was attached to that story won. It was really just phenomenal. And that night, it was my birthday. And uh, so we all, you know, we went and we were sitting in the front row and the, um, the Rangers were playing. It wasn't the finals, but it was the playoffs. And, um, ABC was actually, um, airing it. So we had a lot of our ABC camera guys. And all Nip kept doing was asking one of our camera guys, what's the score now? What's the score now? Which one is it? So he was like, his head was so out of it. He was, you know, totally and utterly uh, in the game. But when we got to that point where they called, you know, the names and they said my name, I remember turning Nip thinking to myself, okay, I heard my name. Did anyone else hear my name? I'm not going to stand up there and, and be, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, um, Afterwards, Susan Haskell and her beau at the time and Nip and I, we went to the plaza and had a nightcap at the plaza and we plunked our Emmys because you all walked away with your Emmys. (laughs) We plunked our Emmys down on the table and uh, ordered a late night dinner and drinks. It was fun. That's awesome. That sounds really fun. Um, Now, of course, as you mentioned, Robert Woods, whose beau was the love of Nora's life, you worked together uh, pretty much from the get-go. And just a few months ago, Hillary, we pulled the readers of Soap Opera Digest to find out their all-time favorite couple from One Life to Live. And Bo and Nora came in first with a whopping 35% of the vote. Oh, you're kidding. Not at all. Wow. (laughs) What is your take on what made that pairing so successful? I mean, you you mentioned the dates, which I think were part of it. (laughs) Yeah, I really do. I think the audience got to date us. Also, you know, neither one of us are new to daytime. And I think we were both open to... um, you know, Wizzy's very funny. He's really, really funny. He does really, really funny things. And we would go down and watch the rehearsals together. And I just laugh at him. And I think he, you know, I think that we just got a kick out of each other and we trusted each other. It was like doing a high wire act, you know, where you know the other person's going to catch you. And you just, so you just fly. And that's what we did. We just flew and we just, we just went for it and um, had a great time. It was just so much fun. Um, and we kind of got back to it at the end. They kind of circled back to us at the end, which we were so grateful for. Um, but they got away from it. You know, they just got away from it. Everyone, you know, has different agendas when they come into, to executive produce a show and they want to create their own super couples. And so we were broken up and that was too bad. But I think that um, also, you know, he, he and I both had marriages that were very similar. We both, you know, had known our spouses forever and a day and we'd been both married forever and a day. And, um, we both had little kids and so our lives were very parallel. And, um, you know, as far as I was concerned, this was a, this was a job that I enjoyed. I had great passion to come to work in. And I think that that's, he felt the same way. And, and when you are excited about going to work, we couldn't wait to open the next script to see where it was going. That, that really, truly 
you're blessed. And I was blessed to work with him. We, I was blessed to be on the show at that time. And, you know, it just, it was really just a, a magical time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any personal favorite scenes or memories from the Bo Nora romance? Oh, I love the dating stuff. I really did. The, I, I just love the dating stuff. We did miniature golf. We did a tennis thing. We did, there were so many wonderful ones. I think they, one of the funny things was when she um, ends up staying the night for the first time. And, uh, you know, there's just underwear and bras hanging from chandeliers, literally underwear hanging from chandeliers. <laughs> and we're under a, a throw on his couch in his, his, um, suite at the hotel. Cause I think he was still staying there and Asa comes and knocks on the door and he just keeps calling me Philly, you know, <laughs> Hey, little Philly. And I keep saying Nora. Um, I just, you know, that dynamic was really great. He just, it, you know, it was always fun to have that dynamic happening. Um, there really are, there's so many of them just there when we got, you know, we were allowed to dance. We were allowed to do a lot of things that we wanted to do. And we had one scene where um, Jill Mintwell just kept the cameras rolling and we just danced around the empty house. We just moved into a new house and so we danced. It was fun. The jitterbug was a very important part of that courtship. We did that jitterbug. We rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And the day that we went up to tape it, we both smelled like Tiger Bomb. And we could hardly move. Um, Well, Little Richard, who uh, just passed away, was, of course, the officiant at the 1995 Bo and Nora wedding. What do you remember about, like, having him on set? Ah, okay. There's a, Wednesday and I just reached out to each other too. And he, he mentioned this story cause it made us laugh so hard. So they, we got there that day and the wedding, you know, all the scenes and then little Richard, um, turns around and says, you know, I have to go in 30 minutes. And they were like, what? <laughs> because yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go someplace. I gotta, you know, I got a concert I got to go do. They're like, in 30 minutes, what? <laughs> We're supposed to have you for the whole day. Because well, I've been here. I don't know what the, I can't say. <laughs> so we had to shoot all of his stuff at once. <laughs> Just his side of the equation. And we stood there and they had all of his stuff. And then he said, you're going to make me do all my lines? I can't remember all these lines. What do you mean I can't do this? <laughs> so they wrote everything down on cue cards including, you know, like the Samuel French, which is the parenthetic idea of what he's supposed to be doing, that direction. So he starts to read. He goes, hey, Bo and Nora, where do you think you're going? Because we're getting ready to walk out. And then he goes, to the crowd. Everybody. In the crowd. Everybody. So yeah, we shot the whole wedding from his point of, you know, looking at him. And then he left. And then we had to shoot the whole wedding without him there. Wow. And I had just worked on a pilot with Cameron Mannheim. So she came and was the rabbi and officiated our Uh ceremony. And it was really fun to see her because we'd done this, this, uh, this sitcom together. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Well, uh, speaking of sitcoms, you did pull double duty from 94 to 95, playing Gene Wilder's wife on the sitcom Something Wilder. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? And what was Gene like to work with and be around? Oh, Gene was the most lovely, lovely man. 
He was so sweet. He was such a gentleman. He, um, he said, I'm not a comedian. I'm just an actor who, you know, who finds themselves in situations that it seems to be funny to watch me get out of them. (laughs) (laughs) He was fascinating. He taught me so much. He taught me how to edit in my head. Um, I would, you know, we'd be sitting there and he goes, oh, I see you got to have this so you can wrap around and pick that up at the end. Okay. I get that. And I'm looking at him going, how do you do that? He goes, if you never learn anything from me in this whole, in this season, in this series, learn this, make sure you understand how shows get put together, how to edit it. It is invaluable. So I went, okay. So I started watching him. And asking him questions about, you know, okay, so this angle and then what? And, you know, how do you pick that? Oh, that's great. So he was a, he was so inspirational from that point of view. But um, it was a, t- that was double duty. That was kind of tough. I would go to work in New York on Mondays. I'd fly out Monday night. I'd start rehearsals Tuesday morning. Uh, we had network run through Wednesday night. Uh, Thursday, we'd rehearse probably with new pages. Friday, we'd rehearse again with new pages, and then we'd shoot it Friday night in front of a live audience. And on Saturday morning, I would take an early morning flight back, have dinner with my husband, and then on Sunday, I had the kids, and everybody had their day off. And then Monday, I went back to work. So I was up for 24 hours every Monday, every week. Wow. But it was really fun, and I wouldn't have done it except for the fact that the – the show, the new producer, Susie Betso Horgan said, you know, we're going to concentrate on other things. So I don't think you're going to have a story until February. So I was in uh, New Orleans. And here's a time stamp for you. Uh, we were coming back from the um, from New Orleans, Woodsy and I. We'd done an affiliates meeting down there. And in the airport, we heard about O.J. Simpson's wife being killed. Oh, God. Wow. Yeah. So that's when it was. I got a call from Barnett Kelman and asked if I would do this. I said, I don't know. I just won them an Emmy. I don't know whether they're going to let me go. And they did. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Guess I'm not that valuable. All right. (laughs) Um, So it was, it was, it was great. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot, a lot of work, but it was It was really fulfilling. I learned so much and I got to hang out with, you know, Gene and Karen, his wife, who I adored and they were so gracious and generous and it was, it was wonderful. And Scotty Bryce and I were sharing an apartment out there in LA. So he came on, um, one episode playing my, my old boyfriend and, um, we tried to get, uh, Woodsy to come on. They were trying to figure out how to get Woodsy on and that wasn't working. Didn't work. Just too bad. Yeah. Um, well, it's amazing. 1992 to 2011, 2011 at the end of the year is when you filmed your, your final scenes on the show. So that was your professional home for so many years. Who were you uh, closest to in, in the cast over the years? Oh, Catherine Hicklin and Cassie DePaiva were probably my closest buddies. Lori Hogan. I spent a lot of time with Lori. Mm-hmm. For obvious oh, reasons, because we traveled together, you know, with, um, with, you know, anytime you did an appearance, uh, Woodsy, Jim DePaiva, uh, oh, Jerry Verdorn, mm-hmm. just loved my Jerry. I used to go to him in the mornings and say, okay, 
And he would sit there and let me just have a little quiet moment with him. And then it was like, okay, I'm ready to face the day. Melissa Archer, um, we still keep in touch because she does Beacon Hill. And Jessica Morris was just did Beacon Hill. But I think that the, oh, and um, Ty Treadway, love my Ty Treadway. Frank Valentini, still stay in touch with Frank. And I've seen Roger, obviously, uh, out in California. But Cassie, really, basically, Cassie, Jimmy, Catherine, Ty, Frank are the ones that I stay the most in touch with. I know I'm forgetting somebody. Mark Dobie's just called me the other day. Last oh, really? The past. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So tell us what you remember about your last day of filming on One Life. I just remember when we said our last words, Eddie Alderson, who I also adore and stay in touch with, Eddie Alderson and Woodsy and I ended up, the three of us, in a bear hug. I have a picture of it. Just in this embrace, just sobbing. Because we, remember, Eddie grew up in the show. We, we actually asked him if he would be our son. We just loved him so much. <laughs> I mean, he, he, was, he was always there because of Kristen. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, and also I just remember Wall Street Journal came and they were there and they were interviewing Woodsy and I. and. I think Woodsy and I just kept looking at each other going, I, this is so surreal. It's just, it was so surreal. That's all I remember. And then I remember, um, coming, but, but they kept saying, don't worry, we're coming back. But when, by the time we shot our last day, we realized we weren't coming back. And that was the hardest thing. It was just like, okay, well, we're, we're shutting down this, but we're coming back to the studio and we're going to carry on. And then all of a sudden we weren't. And we weren't even coming back. So that was what was so jarring. It wasn't like we had months to plan. It was literally, we thought we were all going to be with each other again. You know, some of us had renegotiated contracts with, you know, the other place. Oh, wait a minute. There was one. (laughs) One moment where I went to wardrobe and I loaded up my wardrobe, my dressing room. And I had to walk out of the building and the view audience was all lined up. And I felt like I was doing the walk of shame. (laughs) And I didn't know what to, I know. And I didn't know what to do. So I, all of wardrobe walked with me. It was so sweet. It was so sweet. They all walked with me. And then I pulled the car up and we loaded the stuff and I hugged them all and left. Wow. (sighs) Um, so Mara did mention that was your professional home for so many years. What was that transition like for you when the show went off the air? Oh, that was the weirdest thing is like, there was a part of, I was very excited, um, because I was going to meet this new person, Hillary. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard good things. I had been, yeah, I'd heard good (laughs) things. I kind of remembered her from a long time ago. But I think that was the hardest thing was realizing I had spent more time in my life being Nora than I had being Hillary. And I kind of was really interested to not have her hanging around anymore and to see what that was like. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, um, it was really kind of um, disorienting at first because you kind of like, okay, after two weeks, you're like, okay, that's a vacation. Now what? (laughs) It was, it was bizarre. I was only going to do the show for uh, one contract. Famous last words. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. What made you resign if you were going to leave? You mean when I went back with Prospect Park? Uh, 
Well, I want to hear about that. But I mean, like when you signed with One Life, are you saying you only intended to be there? Oh, yeah. yeah. I was having fun. I was having so mm-hmm. much fun. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Look who I got to go and kiss every day and, you know, who I got to play with. I had Catherine. I had Cassie. I had all these fun people. I had mm-hmm. Ellen Bathia's my daughter. Oh, my God. Bless her. I had Nathan Perdue. Purdue. I mean, Nathan Perdue. Who, who wouldn't love to look into those eyes every day? Mm-hmm. You know, he's just such a handsome guy. I mean, it was just, we, and Jimmy DePive, we just had the best time. We were, I was having so much fun. And I think that's what happened. And then, and then all of a sudden you're invested and you're there. I'd never been anywhere that long. Mm-hmm. And you're invested and you're there and you can't imagine leaving. And then, you know, and that's probably when I should have left when the party was, I almost did leave at one point just before Jill came on, but I'd heard so many wonderful things about Jill. I went, I can't leave now. I can't leave now. And I'm glad that that I didn't because we got to do the whole storyline with the um, with the stalker and I can't remember the character's name. She was my uh, secretary. Oh, um, and then she was murdered. Yes. Um, and uh, there was some dynamite in the cabin. It's all coming back to me. But what was her name? Uh, it was, yes, was that, that's uh, right. Roger Howard Sonia, was wearing a dynamite vest. Was that Sonia Satra's character? No. Um, oh gosh. Uh, she uh, was really new to daytime. She was really interesting though. Uh, the crazier they wrote the character, the better <laughs> she got. <laughs> Funny that. She was great. Oh, I can't. It's not, it's, it's escaping me. Uh, and torturing me as a result. Right. But, well, things I mean, that's what I've been doing. Before. I, I know. I mean, you've I been having me dig up names that I haven't thought about in years. And I can't <laughs> believe I'm finding them back in that old dusty oh, attic of a room. Oh, I got it. Didn't even Google it. I promise. Georgie. That's it. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Nicely done, Mara. Oh, gosh. That's, you're absolutely right. I'm sweating. This is a very uncomfortable <laughs> situation. Uh, Mara's memory is like a steel trap. I mean, <laughs> Ooh, that's uh, hysterical. All right. So uh, in 2012, you popped up again in daytime, and this time on B&B playing sex therapist Stacy. What was that gig like, though? It wasn't that extensive. No, it was longer than it was supposed to be. It was only supposed to be six shows or something like that. So it, it got a little longer and I got to work with Kim Matilla, who I love. She was so great. But, um, I had a different take on the character. I, I had talked to Brad about it and you know what I wanted to do. He said, absolutely, whatever you want to do. But by the time I got to the floor, there was a different feeling about what they wanted from the character. So I was, I went from having my free flowing, you know, kind of sex therapist being very open and very natural to sort of wearing suits and being buttoned up. And, and, uh, so I was like, mm, I don't think this is going to last very long. <laughs> and sure enough, I had a line that said, you know, everything you say is just between us. And of course there's cut to the microphone underneath the table. <laughs> but, <laughs> You know, that Don's character was listening to every word. So, I mean, (laughs) I knew right then and there, I was like, oh, I'm out of here. Oh, I'm so out of here with that one. But I loved it. I loved going over to B&B and getting to, you know, work with all those actors because, you know, that's, that's, there there were some wonderful people. And also, God, I remember when B&B started and, you know, to be able to work on a Bell show 
yeah, bring it on. So that was fun. It was a really, I was really thrilled that they had called and I said, terrific, love to. And I had my, my stint on it. And actually Crystal Chappelle and I overlapped there for a little bit. Right. She was in her flannels and I was in my suit. And, uh, <laughs> and then we moved on. So it was, um, that was really, really fun. And then GH. Right. But Prospect Park did pop up there in 2013, uh, the short-lived internet reboot of One Life. Um, yeah. What stands out to you about that experience? I think the takeaway from that experience is, I remember Jeff Guanot saying, I thought I knew better. I thought I knew better than everybody. And, and, and I think that's a really valuable lesson to understand is when you go into a new medium, you, you have to honor the people who have done it before. And, you know, when you go into, it's an, it's new media, it's a, it's a internet soap. So you can't take the grand scale of soaps or movies, spend the kind of money they spent up front when you're really trying to tell the most important thing on an internet soap is story. It's the most important thing you can do and how it's shot. And at that point I'd already been doing Venice and uh, producing as a matter of fact, Venice, and we did the Grove and stuff. So when we walked into that studio in Connecticut, which was a lovely studio, they had spent so much money building that set out and putting in PA systems. I mean, the infrastructure, they spent so much money on the infrastructure um, that's when I was kind of like, Ooh, and this is going to be tough. Mm-hmm. It's going to be tough, but I enjoyed it. Snoop Dogg came back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we got to play with him, Calvin. And, um, you know, it was, I got to play with Woodsy again and, you know, Jerry Verdorn was right next to me. So we, you know, it just was fun. It was, it was fun. You always just had fun and it wasn't a bad commute. And we had a boat at the time. So, um, my husband and I brought our boat down from Maine down to Stanford and left it in Stanford Harbor. And I lived on the boat. So it was great. Yeah, it was great. Um, Okay. So as you mentioned, we have seen Nora pop up in Port Charles from time to time in recent years. You've made a handful of appearances uh, as Nora on General Hospital. What is it like for you to go to work there? Oh, that was like old home week. (laughs) There were so many... Uh, people that I've worked with back and forth, you know, through uh, the internet dramas that I've done, the soaps that I've done, um, some of the movies of the week, you know, it just was sort of, it was old home week and it was so much fun. And, you know, Jeannie Francis is there. I worked with her the first time and Jeannie and I both live in Maine in the summertime. You know, she's in up in North of me a bit. Mm -hmm. And we just had it was just really, we had a good time. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Hendridge. I mean, we just laughed, laughed and had a great time. And when you're a guest in somebody else's house, uh, and they're gracious to you, it just makes the whole visit that much nicer. And they were so gracious and so kind, everyone. So I had a great time. The only bone I have to pick is with wardrobe. I said, no four inch heels. I looked at him. He handed me those four inch <laughs> spikes. I was like, are you kidding me? I can't do this. I f- <laughs> so. You're like, no, Sean. No, help me, God. And of course, the first thing I do is take a picture of my feet crossing this. It's like, no, I can't get into this anymore. <laughs> you, you needed like a, a foot stunt double. 
That's right. I did. I did. But it was fun. I hadn't worked with Nancy Gron ever. And we'd known each other for years. And um, so that was fun too. I just, I just had a wonderful time. Really just wonderful time. I just really wanted Nora to, to, you know, see Michael Easton's character, Roger's character and do a double take like, huh? But, oh, well, maybe next time. Well, I think um, Frank was a little nervous about it, but I said, all I had to do was do a double take at him or say, he looks so familiar. But there were so many wonderful little, um, you know, nods and tips of the hat about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I like, uh, who was like with the... Elizabeth, I was playing against her and she said, I'm actually a Pine Valley girl myself. <laughs> right, right. And it was very right. sweet. It was very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, now you mentioned Venice and also now uh, Beacon Hill you're doing. Um, so the digital drama series, what do you enjoy about working in that medium, which you've done both as an actress and as you mentioned, a producer? Yes. And I actually uh, co-directed the last uh, season of, Be- of Beacon Hill oh. with, with Crystal. And um, it's really interesting when you, when you step behind the camera the um so much fun to watch people that you've been working with fly you know you just give them you cast them in something you have an idea in your mind how you think it's going to go and then you watch them formulate this character that's so genuine and true to them that's so far removed from anything you've ever seen them do it's phenomenal it's so much fun to watch my peers work i just was thrilled and crystal on Beacon Hill plays this so broken character of Claire. And the first season I was just, you know, I dressed her. I would do her scarves for her because she was like my mother. I dressed her like my mother, you know, and, you know, a Boston Brahmin. And, you know, it was, I watched Crystal just embody this character. I just, so fascinating. If you haven't seen it, you have to watch it just for her character Mm because it's spectacular. And then the second season we had a bit of a, cast change, which was, we thought was going to be very jarring, but that was so interesting. And watching the show take off in that direction too, was really wonderful. Uh, Jessica Morris plays this sort of, you know, actress, dim-witted actress that doesn't understand she's being manipulated. So she's, she's kind of, I cut apart and it, it's just, it's joyful. I, it was just joyful. And producing has been something that I've been doing for a while, which I love because it uses the other side of the brain. And uh, that's where Gene Wilder comes in because I can, I edit my head. I know what I need to get an edit, you know, and how to put it together. My fight is always time because we're on such a strict budget. So it's a matter of making sure that we get the shots that I need with a little padding, but not too much. That was, uh, that was an interesting lesson to learn. Crystal was you know, she gave me the opportunity to do it. She gave people the opportunity to do things that were a little out of the norm of what they've done before, a little out of the comfort zone. And it was really interesting. She was very supportive in having people fly and do what you want to do and do what's natural and what feels good to you. Very nice. Um, well, I know the last time I spoke with you, Hillary, was when you were popping into GH and you were based in Florida. Is that still true? And what's life like where I am right now I'm in Key Largo Florida so what is what is life in Florida like for Hillary B. Smith these days well it's pretty nice um I play golf I'm an avid golfer and I 
play tennis. I play pickleball. I'm very athletic. Um, we have our boat here. And so we're out in the boat a lot. I have great friends here and I'm an avid canasta player. So when the coronavirus hit, we hunkered down here. We stayed here and hunkered down and sheltered in place. And everyone's been sheltering in place. We're very, very lucky because the community I live in has had only two positive cases and both have been very mild. And that's it. Everything else, we've only had like nine tests done and all the rest of them have been negative. Great. Um, so we're, we're, we're kind of in a little bubble here, but you know, masks and gloves were very, uh, mindful of that and following all guidelines. And so I don't play tennis or pickleball, but I, I also had surgery on my neck last fall. I had a ruptured disc that, um, was pinching my nerve. And, uh, so I had surgery last November, so I couldn't play golf, tennis or pickleball all winter. And, um, so I was playing cards, but now with COVID, I now play virtual cards. Oh. So that's been kind of interesting on uh, an app, and I'll give them a plug, called Canasta Junction. And so we all sit in a room six feet apart, masks, whatever, <laughs> and we play on the computer. So no one's touching cards. It's really fun. That's great. It's incredible just the way things are being done. It is incredible. And I hope... I really hope I've got my fingers crossed. I really hope that um, the new normal will not be uh, quite this isolating, okay. but that it will, you know, I know we're going to continue to have cases, but I think we've done a good job of flattening the curve and our cases are still, we're still going to have the same number of cases. We just didn't have them all at once, which is a good thing. Right. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I kind of wonder, you know, I hope that we can get people working and get people, the people who really need to work and the people who really need to eat, that we can get them working and fed and taken care of. Oh, agreed. It's scary. Well, when work resumes and filming resumes, would you be open to doing a longer daytime run, be it as Nora on GH or maybe a One Life reboot someday or playing a different character on one of the other shows? (laughs) <laughs> there are not that many shows left for me to try another stint on. Um, oh, I don't know. I have no idea. You know what? I've learned. I, I learned it back when I was commuting, but I've really, this been reinforced now. I don't look too far in the future. I just kind of stay in the moment and enjoy the moment. So mm-hmm. uh, if something came up, I would have to look at it then. But right now I'm with my family and my daughter's here. My son and my daughter-in-law were here as well with my husband and you know, we really had a very special time for four weeks, you know, a time that I don't think we're ever going to get back again. Well, I mean, who knows? But it was so special for us all to be together in, as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of um, just enjoying the fact that I still have my daughter here and my husband's here and um, one day at a time. Sounds That's good. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we appreciate that you made time to talk to us today. This was so much fun. It was so good to talk to you guys. Thank you for having me. That's fairly nice of you. Oh, it was such please. a joy. It really was. Well, enjoy and stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll wave. If I, if I ever get out of Florida, I'm going to head to the other <laughs> side of the United States. I'm going to head up to Maine. I'll wave as I pass through New York. <laughs> please do. We will wave back. <laughs> well, thank you, Hillary. Oh, absolutely. And I'll talk soon. All right. Perfect. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Hillary B. Smith for being our guest. If you like this podcast, we're on Spotify, so listen on Spotify. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Oh,